You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hey there, this is Abraham, your host. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. So, Ryan, before we start, I well, actually, as we start, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine something, okay? Okay. All right, so... This was not planned? Uh, no, this is just... For listeners. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm going to do is I, I just want you to think about something, close your eyes, and, uh, and I want you just to think about something, think about your house, okay? All right, so are you thinking about your house? Mm-hmm. All right, so I want you to just describe it to me as best you can. Uh, it's tan. It's a part of a couple other houses. Like they're all kind of uh, next to each other. It's like this old '70s development. Um, kind of pretty clean, maintained outside. Uh, I can see the door-ish. Okay. Um, to the gate that gets me in, and then I walk the same path all the time. So, I guess there's two paths either to my door because uh, I have an external door to the house or to the garage to kind of go through that way. Can you see if there's any like there's dirt a, smudges on the walls? There's a tree next to it. There's another bush that I have to like duck to be able to get by because I'm kind of tall to get to the front door. Um, I, I, I kind of concrete's kind of rough. I remember that like walking up to it and there's a ledge to step into the main gate. Can you imagine hearing the squeak as you like open the door? No, I can imagine hearing the like when I pull the little gate opener okay. um, handle because it's like latched on the inside. I can kind of imagine that sound. But again, I've heard that every day for the last three years, at least once a day. Sure. Okay. So now keep your eyes closed. And uh, I'm going to confirm for our listeners that your eyes are in fact closed. <laughs> and so now I want you to try and imagine uh, a monster. It's nothing you've ever seen before. Try and think of something brand new you've never seen and, and just describe whatever you come up with. Okay. So I see, I see like six eyes on this weird, I don't know. It's got talons. It makes sounds like the predator, because <laughs> um, that's scary. All right, you can open your eyes. <laughs> okay. All right. So where, where were we going with this? Well, you know, I just wanted to to just have you describe your experience with it. Now, as you had your eyes closed, would you were you actually seeing something as you were describing it? No, I mean, like it was. I feel like it's a little bit easier to. I use air quotes here. See the first thing I described versus yeah. in the second. Okay. But I, I kind of now, like were you kind actually of biased like, as to like where I'm gonna fall in this topic since I researched it too. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Um, but were were you with your eyes closed? Were there like images on the back of your eyelids that you were actually like looking at like pictures? Definitely not. Okay, so a lot of people when asked to imagine or put in a situation where they have to pretend to experience something, it can be noises or most of the time it's images, but um, it can be uh, like feeling uh, on like on their skin. It can be smells all those sorts of things, there are some people who report that they, they can't. They just have no experience whatsoever when they're trying to visualize these things, okay? And so those people who experience this have been described as having what's called aphantasia and not to be confused with Disney's Fantasia or Fantasia 2000. Boom, boom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so what is this thing? Um, yeah, so it sounds like the opposite of what uh, Temple Grandin likes to talk about a lot, right? Yeah. And has like largely built her career off of, at least on one of her branding aspects of like how she interprets the world and how she like solves and creates solutions, right? Yeah, like totally. this would This would devastate her, I don't know, pers- perspective and like how did she potentially function, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, if she had aphantasia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Um, yeah, and so... What this refers to, so it's Greek, um, it comes from, uh, it, so it means no imagination, and it really is just these people who, uh, they can't visualize mental images in their mind's eye, they can't imagine sensations, well, it depends on, different people have different types of experiences, like they might be able to imagine sounds, but they can't visualize a picture in their mind's eye, and so it, it's kind of interesting, because this has a, this is a pretty new thing, although it does have a longer-ish past. So what I saw, and I think you found something a little bit different in your notes, but what I saw was that this was really first described in 2015. And so that was very recently, you know, at the time of this recording, it's 2017. So only a few years, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, so there's a lot of different, there's rebrands and things like that, right? And like, yeah. I'm sure this isn't something, when I first read your, your notes in 2015, I was like, there's no way, like it was in 2015, but then I thought about it more and. 
was like, okay, that makes sense. Like someone labeled it or maybe it was relabeled. So we see those things. We actually just recorded and should have released a podcast episode on the rename, kind of the restructuring of Asperger's syndrome, right? And how these things can kind of shift. So I was like, okay, maybe that's what it was. But still, when I looked back, I saw some evidence that Sir Francis Galton in 1880 uh, had a survey that suggested that it may only be true for about 2.5% of the population that they experience these sort of lack of or inability to visualize things. Yeah, and I don't think they had a name for it, at least not the one that they currently have. So it was first described um, by, uh, I want to say Adam Zeman. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Yeah, let's go with Zeman. Zeman. Uh, And so he's a uh, cognitive neurologist at the University of Exeter Medical School. I'm saying that correctly. Exeter? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like. Yeah. And yeah, so he discovered or he, he heard about these cases of people who could not visualize and so he started to, to do some research and explore this and you know try and figure out how he could sort of describe this in a I guess in a scientific way yeah okay and so but it, it immediately when I first heard about this raised the question for me I'm thinking how do you know like if someone else is they tell you that, uh, you know, they can't visualize how would you know that they can't visualize? like I I'm thinking of my own I'm like okay I can imagine something that is I um, would imagine seeing something even though I'm not actually seeing it, but I don't know how someone else would be able to look and tell whether or not I was actually visualizing it. So I was really curious. And so I obviously wanted to look and see how are they testing this, right? And what I found uh, was that the first one, and there's some new research now, but the first one was uh, pretty subjective. Uh, It was this visual imagery questionnaire, uh, actually called the Vivid Visual Imagery Questionnaire or the VVIQ. And the purpose of this thing is to basically uh, rate, it asks the person to rate how vivid their mental image is of something. And so um, I actually have a couple of questions uh, from the questionnaire itself. And so it's ranked on a scale of one to five, where one is perfectly clear, as vivid as you were looking at a picture. And then five is no image at all. You just know that you're thinking of whatever it is you're supposed to be thinking of. Okay. Okay. And then uh, the first thing on here is... Think of some relative or friend whom you frequently see but is not with you. Carefully consider the picture that comes to your mind and then uh, rate the following items. The exact contours of their face, head, shoulders, and body. Characteristic poses of head, attitudes of body, precise carriage, length of step. So I guess you're also imagining them moving. Um, and then the different colors worn in some clothes that you commonly see them in. Then it goes on and asks about other things. Uh, it has the rising sun, a store that you go to frequently. And... That and you just go through and you rate each one of these items from one to five. One, you can see it really well, and, and five, you can't. And uh, that was the initial one. And so let's just, let's I stop. Saw, and, I saw a video of this, actually. Oh, like did a you? snippet. Oh, cool. It was cool. a very little bit of a snippet. Describe I believe it, it was Zemin. Um, he was asking the sunset question okay. to somebody. And I mean, this was like a highlight reel, like three-second snippet. Okay. I didn't see anything really of substance. Yeah, it's. I believe it went from zero to 60. Is what they said was the score that I saw. Oh, okay. And wherever the gentleman was, it was like a part of it fell just a little below the average, but around the median, it sounded like. Okay. Like one of the most frequently answered ones. So we have this questionnaire. This might be a reasonable way of investigating this, but we also know that this has got some limitations to it. And I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the basic question of if you close your eyes, and I asked you this when we first started, do you actually see anything? Is there a picture there for you? You're shaking your head no. Um, and there's <laughs> <laughs> there's not one for me either. And really, anybody, there's not an actual image uh, that they see. You are, you're sort of imagining something or you're recalling it or you just, you know. And it makes perfect sense. Your eyes are not receiving any visual information. You're not like getting photons that are hitting your retinas that are allowing you to see anything. And so, you know, there's, you couldn't possibly be seeing anything um, with you know, if your eyes are closed, right? Even if your eyes are open and you are seeing things, is that different? Like, would you, how, again, how would you know? Um, you'd be seeing something, but you would be seeing whatever was in front of you. And you might be thinking about something else. But does that mean that you're actually seeing a picture of it? Um, no. That's one of the things that comes to mind with this when I'm thinking of this questionnaire is like, okay, if you ask me to rate like as perfectly clear as a picture, as is the first one, perfectly clear and as vivid as normal vision, and I have my eyes closed or they're open, under no circumstances am I ever going to say yes, even though there are things that I think that I can't imagine very vividly, right? Even things I can imagine what it feels like to be in a situation where I'm sad, I can imagine what it feels like to get a shot in my arm from like 
you know, a vaccine or something. Yeah. Um, like I know what those things feel like and I can imagine what it feels like, but it's not as clear as the event itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe I'm part of this population of people who can't sense things, but my, my guess is, and basically what I've, sort of interpreted from the, what I was reading from other people is that most people aren't going to hit one very often. People will have a range of scores where it'll be, it can be very clear, but not perfectly clear, which makes the, like, why even have that option yeah. if it's never going to be there, you know? Maybe you don't have the gene for it. Yeah, that could be it. That could be it. Um, we'll get to that because yeah. <laughs> I, I have some notes on that. Cool. Um, all right. And so another thing I was thinking about is if someone can describe anything in terms of its visual you know, uh, characteristics, so describe to me your car using just like um, observable features. So it's black with blue license plates that say Nevada. Um, the license plates are Ryan O. Surprise, surprise. Now you can find and track me anywhere in Nevada, by the way. Although you could probably do that just by watching your social media. Yes. Um <laughs> As for, I don't know, like there's a crack in the windshield. I just got it a couple of days ago. All right. Now, so you're just talking about the visual aspects, but how can I tell if I'm you know, looking at this, whether or not you're describing a mental image or you're just describing the visual descriptions of the thing, even though you're not seeing it right now? Aren't those the same thing? I, I don't I don't know. Like, I, it seems like they sort of are. Right? Yeah. And so I don't, like, know. I don't know. I'm having a hard time telling the difference. Um, and so, again, I'm not trying to comment on this phenomenon. I'm really looking at this as a method for testing that phenomenon, because what I did is I asked you to just describe what what you see. And you could probably come up with vivid details. And even that the alien thing that's not even real, you were describing, you came up with six eyes. You could probably describe the eyes as being glossy and yeah. small and even give like precise measurements for how large they are. Yeah. And all of those things are not. Um, you're not seeing a perfect image. You are just describing visual elements of a thing. Something else I thought was pretty interesting is thinking about just considering people who are born blind and never see anything or um, maybe born deaf and never hear anything. So going to this, the other types of senses that you might try and imagine. Yeah. And Those it makes often also described as like overpowering or they, they overcompensate, I guess. Oh yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wonder, though, if someone who is either born blind or born deaf or born without one of those other senses, if they also struggle with imagining or visualizing, you know, if I, I had a friend in high school and he was born blind, he had never seen anything his entire life. It wasn't even like the kind of blindness where you can see a little bit. It was absolutely nothing whatsoever. Darkness, huh? Just darkness, right? Although to him, it wasn't darkness. It was just normal. It just yeah. wasn't a sense he yeah. had. And I, I had the idea one time to try and describe to him what blue looked like. <laughs> and it's just like it, it there's nothing you could hard. say yeah, yeah i mean because it is only it only has visual characteristics i could say it's a lightish color but he doesn't know what light colors look like i couldn't yeah. say it's a darkish color he doesn't, doesn't know what dark looks like yeah and so it, there was nothing i could do to try and describe to him um what this thing looked like and so it makes me wonder if blind if people who are born uh, visually impaired to the point where they've never seen anything and they also can't visualize things does it would those also be described as people having a fantasia that makes me think that this is not necessarily mental representations um it has to do then just with the eyes you know what i mean because if they uh can't visualize something but then that has to do with their eyes and the other person can't visualize something but it also has to do with the visual uh, i don't know it just makes me think that it has to be one of those two things and i i don't know maybe uh, maybe it's the other way around what do you think so it sounds like to me i would definitely go with the eyes Okay. That's right. what I thought, you know, and, and maybe there's a logic in, in the other way. Um, but it just seems like it has to do with, with the eyes, if, if that would be the case and yeah. maybe the same and thing for someone who's yeah, born and we deaf. talk a lot about like all variables are relevant, right. And these yeah. sort of things, but yeah, that's there's point. definitely still a mechanism sometimes of like kind of a key part and mm-hmm. man, it sure seems like the eyes are important here. It does. I mean, you know, we're talking about what if you're trying to imagine something visually you then have to know what it means to what visual means you have to know what those stimuli are and another one i was thinking about and just again coming back to this questionnaire itself is what if someone is just very literal in their interpretation and i mean you say i want you to visualize your house and you're like, I don't know what that means. Like, I, I don't see a picture when I close my eyes. What's wrong with me? And it's yeah. like, well, nothing. You know, it's that I don't mean that you're actually going to see a picture. I mean, yeah. just tell me the visual descriptors yeah. of your Do house. Do the best you can. Yeah. If, you, if I showed you a picture of your house, would you recognize it? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And so um, that's 
that, that's more, I think, what uh, I worry about with this type of questionnaire is that you don't know how people are interpreting those questions, especially when it comes to language. These questionnaires that are based just on on language and having you try to respond to the question, how the question is phrased is critically important mm -hmm. to how it's interpreted. And even then, not everyone's going to interpret the questions the same way. Yeah. And so that's uh, really... Good old buddy Israel Goldiamond showed that in the 60s very well and that you could essentially set it up to get your answer however you'd like. Yeah, good old Gold um, Diamond coming yes. back. <laughs> yeah, so it's that's just and that's a problem inherent in questionnaires in a lot of different settings, you know, and that sometimes it's something you can get around, sometimes it's not. Another question I had is part of this is not necessarily how well you can visualize the image, it's mostly how well can you answer my question. And yeah. Yeah. And so like, and I said, imagine that Alan, you only gave me a few characteristics. You didn't really give me a whole lot of detail about yeah, no. it. I'm and, not creative in that sense of just making <laughs> up things like that. Well, but yeah, but I mean, it, it does, it comes down to this. It's not uh, necessarily, are you visualizing it? It's, um, are you answering my question in such a way that I can believe you're visualizing it? Yep. 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 And, and, and maybe you even believe that you're visualizing it or maybe you believe that you're not. Yeah. And there's no way that either of us would be able to tell in that case, because it's just asking a question. So I also found this, like, I, I dove into YouTube. I'm all up into that realm the last that, couple of years. That makes sense. So I'm going through an excursion. It kind of led me to this video on using a memory palace as an aid for people who have experienced these things that are called, apparently, aphantasia or aphantasia-like. Okay. So I thought that was pretty interesting since we released an episode of the memory palace and someone's out there saying, like, hey, there's this thing, but you can actually, like, overcome it or try to overcome it. It was, I guess it stood out because I didn't find a lot of that. I found a lot of people like being supportive and relating to being able to not see in pictures. Right. But it was one of the pieces of information and one of the few that I found um, that was actually like trying to look at it from a different perspective. That's super interesting. So they were, it was like a how to to try and improve your condition? Kind of, yeah. And it was, it looked like one of those things that was probably a more well put together uh, college level project okay. or something. Um, did you see if anybody like reported that they had that experience of having their condition improved? No, I did okay. not. I don't know if that was it, in the comments. I don't dig in the YouTube comments mainly because a lot of the YouTube comments just aren't good. Yeah. People I follow. So yeah. I should have, I had that experience myself. Yeah. So anyhow, it was, it was a different perspective that didn't seem to be of the majority. Well, that's pretty interesting. I'd like to look, that, look at that yeah. and see, uh, and just, I, and I might even, take the plunge and look at the YouTube comments and see if anybody reported yeah. that it worked for them. I'd be very curious about that. So, um, and, and you know, this is probably something we'll want to cover at a later time, but there are those who are resistant, uh, to treatment of things like this because they, uh, see it as part of their identity and like, don't try and take this away from me. Yeah. And no, then, I mean, uh, you know, cool. Totally yeah. respect it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's your thing. Then that's your thing. That's fine. Yeah. All right. Um, so, so we talked about the questionnaire and gave a lot of ideas about, where some of the limitations are with that questionnaire. I think that initially trying to look at this phenomenon, it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, how prevalent is this? What are people experiencing? And then this is the quickest, easiest way to sort of go down that path and ask that question. And so it is what yeah. it is. And obviously they want to say, we aren't the only ones who've ever recognized that there's some limitations with this. Obviously the people who are doing research on this, especially for a career, and they have a lot of lines of research that they're pursuing in this, they wanted something better. Yeah. And interestingly, what came out of uh, people who were interested in this was sort of turning to the perception research. And, um, you know, they recognized that there was this problem of subjectivity. And in perception research, although they still rely on people responding to questions often or sort of giving their their own reaction to things. Yeah. Of which I have a very funny story until after this. Okay. It is at least a lot more systematic in terms of how you can observe someone's response to something and then you can uh you can measure it a little bit more precisely and so specifically the, they turned to this idea of what's called binocular rivalry okay and the way that this works i tried this test on myself and i didn't have the right equipment to make it work appropriately yeah. but the way that it works is that there are two images and they're presented to each eye separately so a lot of times we'll have people wear like goggles and specifically the images can't be received by both eyes and the most common one that's used apparently is where there is a um there's an image that is like uh, red over top an image that is blue and then they'll be wearing goggles over one eye that's red and over the other eye that's blue and then they look at this image um with some kind of like divider or something okay um, and what happens is that they are only able to see one of the images and it might 
it might go back and forth between them, but mostly one of the images will stick and then that's the one that they'll see. Okay. And so, okay, cool. So that's interesting. Why is that related to aphantasia? Well, what is interesting about this is that they can prime people to see one of those images by like saying something like, I want you to think of the color blue. And then what happened is if they said, okay, I want you to think of the color blue and then show them the two images about 60 per 60 to 95% of people, which is a huge range. Um, but 60 to 95% of people would, uh, see the blue. They would see the one that they were primed to see. Okay. Okay. But what happened then is that, um, for people who were described as having aphantasia, if they were primed the same way of, I want you to see the color blue or be thinking about the color blue or whatever the prime was, and yeah. then shown the image, only about half of them saw the blue image, which is basically chance. Yeah, then half of them saw red. First thing I thought of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the, the most objective way of looking at this in terms of if we were to prime this and this wasn't a real thing, then we should expect that everybody should see about the same rate, regardless of whether or not they have this aphantasia. Yeah. And what they saw was that it was different. Like they had fewer um, um, people who were able to see the one that was primed at the point where it could have just been a, a shot in the dark, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, and unprimed. And I actually don't remember if uh, in the research that I looked at whether or not they saw that people were 50-50 if it was unprimed. Um, that would be a really important piece of this, but, um, unprimed, I think that it was 50, 50 and primed. It was higher than that. Okay. So if I understand you right, this perception angle of this perception research, mm -hmm. it allows us to kind of rule out some of the subjectivity, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that was the goal, I think. Yeah. But you're still having to like self-report. So it moves us out of this, uh, mental world a little bit, but it, and it houses us still in this visual world, which helps, right? So yeah, it, I was thinking about this and that it's, it's good because it el eliminates this. How do you interpret my questions? It eliminates this, like how vividly are you seeing this? And it really gets more at this angle of just, is my language having an effect on the way that you visually perceive things? Um, that's what it seems to be doing. And that is a lot more objective in what people see, because presumably they should only see one image. And if the only image they see is the one is uh, the one that was primed or the only image they see is the is a random chance, uh, then that tells you that uh, how well that prime worked for the for that person. Yeah. Okay. And so that that see, there is a lot more objective than just saying like on a scale of one to five, how well do you see this imaginary picture? You know what yeah. I mean? There is still that self-report thing. Uh, and another is that uh, the link between the prime and aphantasia is it's actually not necessarily related, you know? Um, and what I mean by that is just because they see this correlation between prime and the 50, 50 shot, that doesn't actually ha necessarily have anything to do with their being able to imagine things visually. That yeah. really just does how well are you reacting to my prime on this visual test? And so what you might be able to, I guess, derive from this is that, what you what you can say is these people are not easily influenced by language to be receptive to at least these types of perceptive tasks um, if not failing to be influenced in other ways as well and it also makes me really curious about these people like i wonder if these are people if they're not susceptible to this language task and they're not susceptible to these kind of instructions to visualize things as well as other people if they'd be really difficult to hypnotize and Again, this comes back to the idea that this is more of this sort of verbal task where it's how well do you understand me? Yeah. And how well is my language influencing you? Yeah. And uh, you're not necessarily seeing how well are you imagining something because you are actually having them look at something uh, directly. Yeah. I'd be curious if people with more expansive vocabularies could imagine. Oh, that's a really cool question. More, right. Oh, I like that a lot. One thing Abraham has on me all day, every day is an extremely expansive vocabulary. <laughs> um, there's not a, an hour that I hang out with them that I don't have to ask them to define like one to six words. <laughs> and I'm jealous. I don't put in the time there, but I, I'd be curious, like, can you... It allows me to do very well at word games. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm curious if you have a more vivid memory than I do as uh, a result. Man, that's a really cool question. I don't know. I, I kind of want to test it now. I have not looked that up, so I don't know. Yeah. Man. Well, if anyone out there is doing this, let us know, because I'm very curious. Hit us up in the comments, DMs, email, or phone. Yeah. All those things. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to... How common is this about how, and I think we actually maybe mentioned before, 
Yeah, so we actually found a prevalence rate of between 1.5% and 3%. Um, so that's kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's actually like a lot of people. 3% of 7.5 billion. Right. That's like where we're at, right? Uh, it's not even like I can't even imagine how many people that really is. Uh, yeah, that's beyond the realm of understanding things. Yeah, we're talking about, I mean, that would be like every single person in New York City. Um, yeah, my calculator, I have to turn it sideways. It doesn't go far enough. <laughs> yeah, that would be up to 225 million people. Whoa. That's a lot of people. That's insane. Yeah. Maybe that's pretty accurate. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just to put that in perspective, I guess that's 225 million people potentially. Well. Or a minimum of 125 million people in the world that yeah. experience this. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, cool. Well, all right. We've kind of described what the tests were and what this is and some of the considerations around that test. But there's there's more on top of this in terms of just the overall concept of what this is and some of the controversy and implications that have arisen as a result of this. And this is very new. So there's, a, there's still a lot to know. So one of the implications of this is that it seems to suggest that people who um, have trouble visualizing also wouldn't necessarily be able to remember all that well. And, uh, and I asked you about your car, but if I asked someone who was actually described as having a Fantasia to describe the car that they drive or the house they live in, and they could tell me like the make model and color of their car, they could tell me their house and, and maybe even the color of the front door and, and yeah. some things inside the house and all that. And then I say, okay, now I want you to visualize that your house and they're all of a sudden unable to do that. That would be really, that'd be really, uh, weird to me, I guess. I don't know exactly how that's fundamentally different by them being able to describe it visually as being able to imagine it visually. At, at least it seems like I can't tell what the difference would be there, you know? Yeah. And so you're saying it's, it's hard to re like hard to understand that why they can do one, but not the other. Yeah. Like they can visualize and describe it in the moment, but they can't do it later. Right. They can describe the visual aspects of it, but they say that they can't visualize it itself. Yeah. yeah. Again, this makes me think that asking them to just describe the details is different from them actually saying that they have the experience of visualizing it. And at least that's their experience with it, even though like we're sort of implying the same thing. All right. So this kind of sounds like something else, like pretending. Well, yeah, that was another thing that I was thinking about. This is it more than anything else we're talking about. I want you to imagine that you feel something or imagine that you hear something or imagine that you smell something, all these things. You're really asking someone to act um, as if something is present that isn't present. Okay. Yeah. And so it's asking them to just pretend if you cannot act as if something is not present, then that would be what people are describing as a Fantasia, but it has all these other implications with it. Yeah. And what's interesting is that these people who um, are described as having a Fantasia, they're actually no less good at creative tasks, at logical tasks, at problem solving. Interesting. Yeah. They are, uh, they are, creative they can um, remember things they have no problems with their memories they do not actually lack imagination in the things that they do and they can they can think of things that aren't there they can describe things that they remember they can write music they can write poetry there's there's and i mean 225 million that's a lot of people yeah. that would be pretty inhibited by this if that were the implication that they also can't act as if something wasn't really present which is largely what verbal behavior is anyway and so all of this requires this thinking and executive functioning um, in the brain and um, this whole aphantasia and fantasia Disney reference actually like made me think we should probably kick this episode to people like that to see if there's anyone in that realm. Yeah, right? I, I would actually because, I mean, love anyone that. in that design and creative process. Like that's the idea, right? Is like you can visualize and see these things and you <laughs> put them on paper. Yeah. Maybe huh. maybe it's three percent of the population that's not in a fantasia. Yeah, <laughs> sorry for the side rant. I'm just kind of connecting things over here, thinking. Um, that's totally cool. And something else I found was someone describing this is, and this is I think this is an important point is that imagery is not actually pictorial, and that is to say that when we say that we're thinking of something visually, or I'm telling you to imagine something, and you can describe what it looks like, you're not actually seeing any images. You're not seeing any pictures. Um, you. What are we seeing? Because uh, I feel like I see pictures. Could be the argument, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe it, it could be. Is what you're again? It's it's basically pretending you're you are acting as if you are uh, seeing a picture. And so there's this test that I saw that I kind of liked. So first, if I show you a picture of a tiger, and you have a so this picture is right in front of you. Okay, mm -hmm. could you with the picture that you're actually looking at? Could you count the stripes? If I was actually looking at it, yeah, totally. Okay. Now, if I ask you to imagine a tiger, 
I want you to imagine counting the stripes on the tiger. Is that because you just prime the answer? Maybe. <laughs> um, I've, I feel like I'd have a difficult time. I'd be doing things like I did with the alien, like, uh, it's got six eyes. Right. Yeah, I mean, you could kind of make up how many stripes could be there, but they could also change as you're imagining it. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're imagining things, you're doing so verbally because I asked you to do it. And so what you're doing is you're using your understanding of that language to create what your language would describe as being that visual imagery. And so you then can sort of make up what that would be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's real. And so I was open again. What's that? Oh Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And another one that I've done that I think is kind of fun is that I'll ask someone to like, all right, if you look at your name in writing, looking at my name on my phone, what's the second to last letter? N. Perfect. All right. Close your eyes. All right. So imagine your last name. Uh huh. What's the fourth letter? Uh, Does an apostrophe count as a letter? N. Okay. (laughs) I'm just messing with you. Yeah. Um, okay. So it took a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's difficult because you're not actually looking at a picture of it. If you're looking at a picture of a word, I can easily ask you to, to rattle off the letters. You can do that. But when you're trying to imagine visually, it's much more difficult even for people who do not, you know, label themselves as, as having difficulty visualizing things. Yeah. And so these aren't really visual tasks. They're verbal tasks. It's really important to state at this point. So we've basically been talking about what is difficult about this and how to understand it and how to measure it and, and what's going on with this. And I really want to point out here, and I've tried to say this a couple of times now, is that I'm not saying that people might not be experiencing something here. Of course they are. They're experiencing something and they're experiencing something that they believe to be different from what other people are experiencing. Okay? I would totally agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I don't want to discount because, again, I don't know whether or not you're able to, ima- to image or... yeah. Uh, whether whether you're able to imagine something or visualize it. And at the same time, I don't know that someone isn't able to do that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I can't say that, um, that they are or not having this experience. I have to believe that they are. It's the, yeah. it, it, you know, it makes sense that they're able to report on it. Then yeah. something's going on. Scientific standpoint. I think yes, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, just moving on with a couple more of these implications, uh, especially of the research of this. So there are quite a few studies. There's some neurology studies. There's some of these uh, more cognitive task studies that involve that questionnaire and a bunch of people who have tried to ask this question a bunch of different ways. And one of the limitations I saw in these studies is that every single one that I saw was a group design that had about seven people. Um, I did see up to 15 and I think I saw one that was as high as about 20. So even not being from that world, I know that's extremely low. Yeah. Like I'm very into single subject design, very different approach. Right. And still. Yeah. And group design, you know, that's, um, that's how most psychological research is done. In order to be able to test for statistical significance, you have to have a few hundred people to really have a good sample size. And, you know, a hundred can work, but seven, like that's, that's very low. And, you know, there is, I want to point out, because this is affecting a, a relatively low percentage of the population, even if you're at like a university setting, you don't have a really large pool to draw from. Yeah. That could be one of the reasons it's difficult to get a lot of participants in here. It's even relatively new with it being coined. So. Yeah. Great point. Interesting yeah. to see where it goes. Yeah. So awareness future. of this is still pretty low. Um, and so uh, it's difficult to do this kind of research. But just saying that if you look at those studies, having populations that are that small in the group design makes it very difficult to derive any meaningful statistical significance from that. Another implication I was thinking about with this is if someone had aphantasia and they weren't able to visualize something. Okay. And again, saying that that is uh, 100% valid. Yeah. 100% valid. Um, so I'm saying that you that you might have aphantasia, wouldn't that imply that if I were to describe something to you and then you saw it, it'd be like, whoa, I had no idea what that looked like. Yeah. Like it w- everything that I described to you that you hadn't seen or experienced before would be like a huge surprise. And it seems just like, you know, if I were to say, oh, I drive this red car that is a four-door Hummer. And then I went outside and there was a four-door Hummer and I went in and they're just like, whoa, I had no idea this is the kind of car you drove. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, um, that it seems like that would be an implication of you wouldn't be able to imagine what that would look like. So everything that you saw would be a surprise. Or if I were to describe what something sound like, it'd be the same thing. Like uh, there's this music that's, uh, it's very gravelly and grating. And then you listen to it and you're like, man, that was not at all what I thought I was going to be listening to, even though it's exactly how you, you would describe it. You just describe my favorite genre. That's right. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and so, um, and the last question I had on this, and this is not necessarily an implication or even a controversy, but it really raises the question of, is this ability to visualize imagery and kind of conjure it up in your mind's eye? Is that something that is learned? And how would you know? 
And if it is something that's learned, could it be something that is lost? Um, and could it be regained again? Or maybe someone who is at you know the point in their life when they're adult and they are having this experience of having aphantasia, could they be able to learn to visualize things? Yeah. I mean, because I I mean, our, our language is learned. Has there been medically induced aph- aphantasia? Actually, one of the reasons that this research ever even got kicked off was this um, study, and uh, they use a pseudonym, and I saw different pseudonyms, and so we're going to call this person John. Uh, so this person, John, he was an older gentleman, and he had a procedure, some kind of surgery done to treat some heart problems that he was having. Okay. Um, so some kind of coronary artery heart surgery thing. Okay. After the surgery he reported that he was no longer able to visualize things. Huh. It was really kind of funny in the stories that I read that it was every day he walked around all day imagining these things. And I'm like, man, this is like, it sounds like a crazy person, <laughs> <laughs> like practically hallucinating. Or a very creative person. Yeah, or very creative, but they're just not ever in the real world. But it, I think it was just using hyperbole to try and sell the story. Yeah, no, I'm sure. A lot of strategies used like that to keep clickbait rolling yes totally and so anyway the way that it was described is this this gentleman had lived his whole life had never had any issues with this and then he had this heart surgery and afterward for some reason was unable to visualize things and so what's important about this is that this gives us a comparison for the first time because most of these people who are described themselves as having aphantasia don't like have the experience of losing it or gaining something when they didn't have it Um, but instead we have this person who very explicitly could say that he did have that experience of being able to visualize things and then all of a sudden was unable to do so. And that's very curious in that, you know, that is a lot more evidence, I think, in favor of what might be going on here and gives us something to sort yeah. of look at to um, just describe it a little bit more objectively. Yeah. So Not it still gives it, us the issue, though, of like there was no baseline measure beforehand, right? It's just his verbal reports. Right. Yeah. So, so we keep getting hit with this verbal report. Yeah. Because we don't actually. really difficult. Even though he had the experience of being able to describe things visually, we weren't measuring that. We weren't testing it. And it makes sense. You're not just go out in the world and test people for this and then hope that they have to get open heart surgery that results in them losing this ability. Yeah. Not that I'm saying I want that to happen. I'm just saying that's an unrealistic way to approach this. Do we know if he ever relearned to visualize? As far as I know, he didn't, but I didn't see any follow-ups. I actually had a hard time finding a lot of details on this. Okay. Um, but what was interesting is they did want to look at this neurologically because, of course, as soon as they heard about this, people were like, whoa, we need to study this, yeah. which is great. That's how science works. Yeah. And so they, of course, tried to do an fMRI, and we talked about that, yep. which means that they were using statistical packages to analyze thousands of tiny voxels. Episode but, anyway. five, if I remember. Uh, could be. I don't recall. <laughs> it was early. Uh, so, yeah. And what they did is they, uh, when they had him looking at pictures of people that he knew, they saw that he was able to easily identify people from their pictures. But then when he asked him to imagine faces of people that he knew when they were looking at this fMRI, the part of his brain that was associated with facial recognition was far weaker than when he was actually looking at a picture. I assume it was also weaker than anybody who was imagining and not just looking at a picture, but I don't, I, I don't know. I just didn't see that in the description of this. I had, like I said, had a hard okay. time finding good details. Yeah. So this is again, a lot more solid evidence of there's, there's an effect out there. We don't entirely know what's going on. Um, but the, but it's there, you know, the people are having this experience in terms of this as a research study, although we do have that pre and post comparison, we didn't actually get that baseline, as you said. And the other thing is this is, one person and we have we don't really have an experimental condition or a control condition or a baseline condition yeah um we really just have a post condition yeah you know and so um what sometimes is described as like having an a phase and a b phase where you have your baseline comparison and then your experimental comparison this seems to only have the b phase which isn't even really an experiment it was just a thing that happened and so this it lacks the ability to have a lot of control, although it has the advantage of have, being able to have a lot of detail about his experience, which is kind of an advantage of a case study, something about which I plan to talk about in an upcoming episode. Ooh. <laughs> Teaser. Okay, so let us consider this in terms of the um, some of the other philosophies of psychology. This is kind of my take on this in general. I'm going to kind of like, semi-logic through this catch me if i make any big errors okay okay so memory has to do with these cues as we've talked about there's a lot of different cues that are out there uh you mentioned these the different senses any Mm -hmm. of those can be a cue to stimulate and trigger different memories or whatnot because of so there's that now because of this area now they call it an area of uh stimulus control just kind of like what you know what influences us and under what 
circumstances and can you teach and those sort of things, right? So we're, I mean, I'm talking about the literature of teaching, learning, like all of this. Okay. And because of that, I don't want to say that anything's impossible. So like I've learned that there's a lot of things you can teach under certain conditions in which someone isn't learning things. And if you go in and look at your practices, you actually can teach certain things. So this is likely a thing that's being experienced. I want to just like come out with that. But the question is, to what degree is it being experienced and can it be influenced at all? I think it's a good question. It also reminds me of when you were talking about the person who was recommending using a memory palace to try and teach visualization. Exactly. Yeah. Like they're in line with like my view, I guess, and the view I kind of orient to when I look at these sort of things. And I would say theoretically it appears that it could be influenced as it falls under the same area of large, broad areas of learning and teaching um, and relearning as well. Mm hmm. Um, and those sort of areas. And this has actually been demonstrated like that you can teach in just about every area of life. Single, like a, a surprisingly large number of things. Single cell organisms, sponges, yep. all included. All the way up to extremely complex repertoires with uh, humans or animals, right? So I think it kind of brings us back to this thing where like, I, I resonate with the personal side and the experience of it and cannot judge on that we can only ask these sort of questions like we were in a scientific scientific way right we have to look at these at an individual level and actually test whether or not what's going on here sure I mean, yeah. that's it i agree so with that empirical question kind of aside we provided some other questions that are important to you to get kind of for the skeptical listeners i would say so things like when you're saying like can you not visualize your car or your house like those are very interesting to me i didn't think of them beforehand and it's just like huh need to chew on that sort of stuff more so i hope listeners do that Okay, so there's some quotes from people who describe themselves as having aphantasia. The first quote I'm going to read is from a skeptic who does not believe in such a thing. And then I think you also had a quote from someone who described themselves as having aphantasia. Is that correct? Uh, I'm un unsure. He's definitely a supporter okay. of the... The community? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the first one that I had, it's, it goes like this. What does a person mean when he closes his eyes or ear, figuratively speaking, and says, I see the house where I was born the trundle bed in my mother's room where I used to sleep. I can even see my mother as she comes to tuck me in, and I can even hear her voice as she softly says goodnight. Touching, of course, but sheer bunk. We are merely dramatizing. The behaviorist finds no proof and imagery in all this. We have put these things in words long, long ago, and we consistently rehearse those scenes verbally whenever the occasion arises. And so that was said by uh, John B. Watson, the infamous John B. Watson. Yeah, he's well known. Yeah. Um, and I had a hard time tracking down this citation, but uh, I did find that it was in 1932. And I believe it was in a book. Um, so that obviously takes the sort of skeptical angle of this isn't a real thing, or at least it's not um, it's not visual imagery. It's something else. And people aren't, aren't having an experience is that that's my read on it anyway. Yeah. He's just he's, saying like, we're being dramatic. <laughs> yeah. He's been quoted out of context, even quoting him kind of in context here. I mean, he's pretty blunt, blunt with the calling it out as sheer bunk. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Uh, so I did find another one that I think was interesting, um, from someone who described themselves as having aphantasia. And this is someone who said that they had like total aphantasia. And that's something where I alluded to the fact that some people might have aphantasia for particular senses. So someone might describe themselves or have the experience of having aphantasia just for visual imagery while someone else might have it just for auditory experience, uh, I guess, experiences. Yeah. And, uh, so those are like, I guess there's a category of like partial aphantasia versus total aphantasia. So this person said that she had total aphantasia and she said quote when i try to picture things i might see some flashes of light but nothing voluntary end quote and so she's basically talking about her experience of when she tries to imagine things that she kind of gets some visuals mm -hmm. something that's happening but it's not really the, the image itself and so i think it's kind of interesting um that just had a direct quotation from someone who experienced that yeah so i was digging in on aphantasia uh it's a website it's aphant.asia Right. Um, clever. Yes. Very clever. And there's a gentleman, Thomas Broad, and I'm going to read his quote now real quick. He said, in my opinion, a good way to approach any question that relates to the subjective experiences of aphantasia is not to ask how they feel different, but to ask why others seem different to them. That may seem like asking the same question, but it forces the individual not to reflect on what they experience, but to reflect on the understanding of how they perceive others ability to visualize. Don't know if there's any validity into that or if it has anything to what we've been talking about. 
Uh, I think it's an interesting perspective. Um, and I think he actually is also sort of speaking to when I said, it makes me wonder if part of this is how they react to instructions and I guess verbal descriptions of things. Yeah. And he goes on to continue to say, we, we know we are different. We can't visualize or form any synthesized sensory experience in our mind. However, to deepen our understanding, we must understand how we differ from the general public. I think that's a great place for the community to be sitting. Yeah. Like they're trying to understand the situation. Yeah, I totally agree. Like it's it's the sort of curiosity and also the, we don't know. You yeah, know, it's, so, you know it's, it's, I think, the openness to, to learn more. Yeah, so I wanted to, um, and we, we both found this, but point out the resource that mm-hmm. is out there. And anything from like the kind of scientific perspective, like I'm always interested to see people writing about trying to understand these things, especially the ones that are experiencing it, as he talks about. Totally. Yeah, so I guess we can kind of wrap this up and just reiterate the point that we're not trying to take away the experience from people who um, have this and this is part of their experience and their lives and that sort of thing. Um, whatever they are experiencing is at least real. It's real for them. It's real for whatever is going on for them. And it's possible that this just needs that better research. You know, this is pretty new in terms of being described scientifically. Extremely new. Yeah. Uh, like one of the newest things I've ever heard of. <laughs> um, and so, you know, more research means better understanding of what this event is. Um, sure. I think the good neurology research and perception research is going to be some of the more illuminating stuff that we'll see. And the purpose of this episode was really just to be able to describe what this thing is and some of the implications of it. So we're sorry if it sounds like we're criticizing those people. We really absolutely don't mean to be doing that. It's just trying to take this, what is going on here? What are the implications? Where has the science been so far and how could it be better? Like that was sort of why I wanted to tackle this. And so although perhaps frustrating this condition does not appear to result in impairments that really reduce one's ability to function or have a high quality of life, there are people who are in this community that have this experience of aphantasia who are very successful and they seem to be doing very well. And they are very creative people as well that I've heard of. I'm not going to call any of them out, Yeah. but I, I did read some names on there that I thought was, was interesting that there were some kind of high profile people that were on this list. And for myself, and I'm really curious about this for you too, but based on all the research I did on this, I, I can't even tell whether or not I have aphantasia. Yeah. And again, like I'm, inc- I'm inclined to believe that I don't, but I can't, I can't really tell based on the description yeah. of it. Um, I tried to do these. I kind of went the other way, like talking and researching this. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of like, man, do I have that? Like, right. Because I rely so much on like visual aids all the time. Sure. And I've I, got minutes, hours of videos a day, uh, pictures all over the place, to-do notes everywhere. And it's just because that's how I get stuff done. Um, yeah. And that's totally, how I, I recall, remember, and kind of relive things. At would, least the details. Right. Yeah. Even with this, like um, the binocular rivalry test, I don't know that that would necessarily convince me because, again, that's looking at how my visual processing is working and not necessarily how I'm verbally constructing that mental image. Yeah. And I feel like I can imagine things pretty vividly, but I I, I don't see pictures. I don't see anything even Mm -hmm. remotely like a picture. You know, I just I can imagine it in such a way that I can describe it really well. And I've done the memory palace exercise before. And it's like, I have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. That sort of vision that living in that space, but like, there's nothing, there's no flashes, there's no images, there's no anything. Yeah. Um, even though I can, I can sort of behave as I can pretend as if I was having that experience. I I just can't tell whether or not based on this description, I would fall in that category and maybe I just need to get tested. But yeah, so that was kind of my experience with that. Um, and then I think the last thing, and I don't know if this is helpful or not, but looking at this from sort of the neurological perspective, like no one can actually visualize things in terms of seeing an image with your eyes closed or having an experience without having the sensory input because you yeah. know, that sensory organ of yours is not receiving the stimulation that the majority would act- of at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Simulation. So if I, you know, I could close my ears and imagine I'm hearing music and I can like sort of hear music in my head and that sort of yeah. thing. I can close my eyes and imagine that I'm seeing th- something. Um, but there's no picture that actually shows up. I'm not receiving any auditory or visual stimulation in those circumstances. Our brain and our mind, they just don't work like that. They don't create stimuli out of, out of nothing. But what we can do is we can have our verbal behavior, our language around this, and we can act with our language as if those things were real. And it's one of the great benefits and downfalls of being, of having language is the fact that we can do this thing. Um, So if there, if there's anyone who 
again, this is my experience with this, I guess. I don't want to try and tell people they're not having this experience. But when I look at this, because I can't visualize things, at least in the sense that I'm not seeing pictures, I don't, I was not inclined to say that I have aphantasia and I'm not now, but I also am not having that visual experience. So I just don't know. Maybe there are people out there who are like really concerned and maybe, maybe you should get tested as well. I just can't tell. Yeah. Same here. So yeah, I think uh, as we said before, if you if you have any thoughts on this, if you have the experience, we'd love to hear from you. We you know would be more than happy to share your story on the podcast. Uh, reach out to us via email, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. We have everything. Also, if you're curious about checking out, there's a community of people. As Ryan stated, website for this is afant. So a p h a n t dot asia, and there's a group of people who have this experience and. Yeah, as we said, they seem to approach this from this. Um, they're curious, you know, they want to know more about this and they want to support each other. And I think that's great. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Cool. Hope you have an awesome rest of your week. Yeah. We'll catch you next time. This is uh, Abraham and Rhino out. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by ABAI's disseminating behavior analysis, special interest group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. <laughs>